I used to think everyone should run out and start their own business, but now I'm like, are you are you, are you sure you want to really? Because it's hard. A lot of, a lot <laughs> it's of really people, hard. <laughs> a lot of people still see the you know the whole thing of like uh, startup is hard. You know, it's like you're going to struggle for a while, but you always win. But it's not that. You know, it's it's this milestone that you struggle against, and then it's that milestone that you struggle against, and you know, there's always the next challenge. Hi, this is Rock. Hey, I'm Justin, and we're the founders of Ikaya, and you're listening to Startup Circle with Steve Forte. The podcast that gives you insight into the minds of South Africa's most innovative entrepreneurs and businesses. Today we have serial entrepreneurs Justin and Ruach in studio with us. They're the co-founders of Ikaya, a Cape Town-based property rental company that's dubbed the Tinder for rental. Ikaya is a business that boasts 35,000 searches on their site every single month. That's a lesson in itself. Let's measure the metrics that matter. So Justin and Ruach are sitting in a pretty good position as the, the founders of such an established business. But that's not what we're talking about today. Today we're talking about their previous business, Airborne. Airborne closed after just two years of operation. Which begs the question, here we've got the same men with the same intellect, with the same motivation and the same passions and the same savviness in starting a business. One business has become an overwhelming success and it's run for five years, that being Ikaya, and the other business, Airborne, shut its doors after two years. Join me in understanding exactly where that point of convergence is, where one business flourishes and the other one fails. Guys, welcome to the show. So, so Airborne, let's start with that. What was it? Airborne was nothing short of industrial revolution, the product of useful naivete and uh, gross ambition. Basically, what we thought about was a concept that moved away from the idea of buying music. To set it in context, this was 2011, so like streaming wasn't even big right there. People were still actually buying music. And we thought about a model that actually transitioned away from the idea of buying the product or the works of an artist and more towards transitioning to the idea of supporting an artist. So quite simply put, it was a way for fans all over the world to, to to financially support and be engaged with the artists that they love and in exchange uh, receive an unrestricted, unlimited uh, stream of consciousness and content from the artists that they that they support. So, so can I think about it as, as the Spotify or the Apple Music of today's terms? Uh, if you blended that with something like a Patreon, so the idea that you're not paying for content, that you're directly, the financial contribution is towards the artists themselves and the content would come freely. And any, and the content was free for you to transmit and share with other people as well, thereby helping spread the word of the artist. So, so in 2011, the ideas like, like Patriot and, and Apple Music and, and Spotify, th- these businesses were around, but a lot of us in SA didn't know about them. I know I, know I didn't. Talk to me a little bit about where this idea came from. I think we preceded Patreon Patreon didn't exist and Spotify was around, but no Apple Music. Um, So it came from SoundCloud, like just yeah, SoundCloud was all the rage back then. Uh, It came from it was kind of an organic idea that sort of hatched around the idea that we understood that the real limitation behind why the music industry was broken was because everybody was suing everybody over licensing. And regions. Yeah, yeah. So and licensing comes from monetization of content. And so what we did was like, as we do with just about every business, is try and rip the industry apart until you've only got two pieces left, and those are ultimately the most important ones. 
And in music's case, it's the artist and the fan. So with those two uh, vestigial uh, elements, <laughs> elements um, we decided to build a bridge between them. And we saw the opportunity to create that bridge as something that was more meaningful, something that was more true to what music was. So quite an altruistic view. But it was about the relationship. It was about a connection. You know, music is never really talked about in rands and cents by people who love music. Um, and so we wanted to build a tech-enabled platform because that would give us the scale and reach to hit uh, a global audience to bring global transformation, um, but do it in a way that was like really intimate because that's what music is. That's what it's my band. It's not your band. <laughs> you know, they, they speak to me. They, like that. That truth, that simple human truth, was something that we tried to reproduce at massive scale through tech, and then attach a business model to it. So bringing a change to the music industry, that's, that, that's quite a, a tricky ambition. Talk to me a little bit about Justin and Rua. Where, where did you guys meet? Uh, how do you guys know each other? And, and why, why did you decide that you were going to be the two guys that were going to create this new innovative music solution before Patreon, Apple Music, and Spotify? Well, firstly, because nobody else was doing it. Everyone seemed to be very happy with the traditional model or method of distributing music online. Um, and they seem to be quite happy with the status quo of chasing down people who were trying to spread music. And we thought we could, with the use of clever technology and open licensing models to allow not only for the music to spread correctly, but also for us to be able to capitalize on that and create a business model that would support it and us. Take it back as to, to, to how we met. It was actually playing games. Um, we used to LAN, um, and uh, we used to have this a friend of ours had an apartment in Newlands, pretty much across the road from where our offices are now, and it was a den of iniquity. But not for the, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll you might expect. It was networked computers and oh, cigarette butts and pizza. and pizza. And uh, we used to get in there and not shower for days and just play games against one another. And uh, the game was Dota that we used to play. And that spawned a friendship. And then ultimately, I think work-wise, I think we both university dropouts. So we sort of hustled our way into our first jobs. And it came apparent that Rook was much stronger on the tech side and could could uh, design really awesome solutions like that didn't cost like ridiculous money from a technical point of view. And I had a pretty good eye for design. So our first business was kind of, I guess you call it a digital agency, but it was really just the the vehicle where the two of us started working after hours in the office where we were employed, uh, building websites for... Moonlighting. Yeah, moonlighting. <laughs> uh, bringing design and technology together, which has pretty much been the, the raw ingredients for everything we've done since. So Dota on the weekends, main job or... Dota in the week too, man. <laughs> <laughs> Lunchtime. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so Dota in every spare hour you have. Um, Dota is our deal. golf. <laughs> you know, like you never know a man until you played around a round of golf with him because when he loses his uh, temper, then you know the true measure of a man. Dota's like that. That, except you can play like a game over lunch. So, so, so Dota in every hour that you you've got free, um, you you've got a, a kind of a primary job going or for for that's paying the bills at the end of the month, and you're moonlighting with with whatever idea you come up with and that you're passionate about. What are your backgrounds? What are your experiences? What what was the first job that you were doing outside of 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 your 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 side hustles? Uh, I was airbrushing models at a men's magazine. 
I learned a lot about the true nature of the girls on the front cover of magazines. Just want to be clear, is that airbrushing physically or on a computer screen? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of both. No, I'm joking. Uh, it was uh, spending my life at 3200% zoom into the intimate regions, removing hairs and pimples and whatnot. Um, not as glamorous as it sounds. Uh, I was working for a sister company to that company uh, based in the UK. So you were airbrushing their sisters? No, 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 no. I was actually, funny enough, that company was also in the real estate space, but they worked primarily in the sales market in the UK. So I was doing project management and general you IT bitch work. Right? Dragged them kicking and screaming into the 21st century. Yeah. And, and, and did this fulfill you? Because, I mean, we, we've had entrepreneurs in the show before that said they, they always felt this itch to do something more, you know? And it begs the question, does a corporate gig or, or does a gig where, where, where you're not the person who, who owns the company ever fulfill people? And I think... Look, I, I mean, uh, personally, I, like, there was a lot of cool opportunity that would have been amazing to stay there, but you're working on somebody else's goals and timelines and hitting your head against those sort of glass ceilings in that way where you know that the business would do really well if they allowed you to go down X route, but because the owner or the directors or the board weren't interested in it, that idea gets shut down. And then ironically, six years, seven years later, you look at them and they actually are suffering because of that. You know, it's a, it's, it's something that you like, you got to weigh up and say like, am I willing to wait it out here till I'm at that level on the board and I can make those decisions? Yeah, Cut but by the run. same token, um, if you want to be a part of life's journey, life ex life's experience, um, I think it's valuable to learn what it means mm -hmm. to be an employee. Um, you got to start at the bottom, literally. Uh, but uh, we both sort of had started little businesses of our own. But, you know, starting a little business and having self-determination is nice and all. But as, as you point out, paying the bills is important. Um, and I learned uh, from some great bosses and some crap bosses uh, along the way. And that sort of added color to my own attempt to be a quote-unquote boss these days. And I don't think I'm a very good boss, but... Uh, um, I think I'm a lot better for having the experience of of seeing inspirational guys and really terrible leaders uh, take a crack at it. So I used to think everyone should run out and start their own business, but now I'm like, are you are you, are you sure you want to really? Because it's hard. A lot of, a lot <laughs> it's of really people, hard. <laughs> a lot of people still see the you know the whole thing of like uh, startup is hard. You know, it's like you're going to struggle for a while, but you always win. But it's not that. You know, it's it's this milestone that you struggle against, and then. It's that milestone that you struggle against. And you know, there's always the next challenge. And you might think you're over over all the the sort of valleys and everything, but it's there's the just the next one. Despair is around the corner. It's always there. So you just gotta keep pushing through it. But I mean, like that also comes just to how you set it up, you know. Uh if you're a a solo founder, for example, that's that's hard business doing it yourself. Like you have to do everything. You're wearing so many hats. At least, you know, if you have a, a partnership like we have or, you know, somebody you can actually trust in your business that the tasks assigned to that person are going to get done and the tasks assigned to you are going to get done, then it lightens the load and you can actually go a lot further before you burn out or... Mm -hmm. yeah. Just having someone like just the companionship at three o'clock in the morning of knowing you're not alone is a is what allows you to survive through the, the darker times, so... Mm -hmm. Yeah, as you say, like partnership for us, I think was critical in being able to eventually muscle through and, and bounce off one another to keep motivated through multiple businesses. And a lot of it was terrible, like really depressing. And we were really poor 
for a very long time, and that's uh, that's very unsustainable for most people. So you have to like not want to, you have to not want a normal life. And yeah. I think if you don't want a normal life, then you'll be fine. But if you want a wife and kids and stuff like that, then, take a holiday every six months. That's yeah, if you know, yeah. if you plan on taking leave, <laughs> <laughs> the entrepreneur life is not for you. <laughs> so let's jump back into airborne. At the end of the day. A large element that's critical for the success of a business in this space is cracking the licensing agreement. I think you've described a, a business model that's, that, that's very simple and, and very straightforward and that it makes a hell of a lot of sense to whoever listens to it. But this business fundamentally failed. So, so where was the issue? The issue was not part of what we designed was a whole new licensing scheme. So we designed, we had the Airborne license, which was a modified version of the Creative Commons license back in the day. It was a legal license that every piece of work uploaded into our system gave the ability for it to be shared completely freely across the world. So, like, we solved that issue too, right? So we had the tech, we had the business model, we had this licensing thing. Where our failure was is a fundamental misunderstanding of artists, I guess. You find a few talk a good game about being independent, but really an artist wants two things. They want to be signed by a major record label, doesn't matter what they tell you. They want to be signed by a major record label and they want to wake up next to someone more attractive than they are. They are terrible workers when it comes to adopting technology, or at least they were back then. You know, I guess now it's become a bit more common to leverage platforms like YouTube and SoundCloud and whatever to like grow your career. But like back then, uh -uh, it was about, it was about performance. And as I say, people more attractive than you were. Um, And so I guess a few things that we can point it down to. Perhaps we should have targeted the friend who wants to be a manager rather than the artist directly because maintaining a relationship takes work and artists are just, they're artists, yeah. you know, they they don't, they're not consistent in terms of um, busy work, uh, which is, uh, which was something that our platform kind of relied on. But I think the main key issues are we were probably in the wrong country. I think had we started this on the West coast of America, we would have had access to, artists or more intimate access to to artists and thought leaders and journalists and investors who were probably more on the wavelength that we were trading. It was it was very, very outside the norm for South Africa. Uh, and we didn't like the business required significant investment as a direct yeah. consumer play. And we were never going to get that from I mean, we raised some money here in South Africa and some of it came from overseas. Um, but really to really make a go of it, we needed we, we probably needed to be in Silicon Valley to really make it work. And then I think the main issue was timing. I think uh, one of the things we've always struggled with, I think with all the stuff we've done, is living 15 minutes ahead of our time. Uh, Airborne was probably a full 60 minutes ahead of its time. Like If you look at now Patreon, like Patreon's taking off now, but it's like seven years after Airborne that it, this idea of subscribing to creators is, suddenly, is now starting to become... Um, uh, mainstream. And I mean, the system that we created with the licensing, the technology and the business model behind it. I mean, we took like 400 forms of payment in 200 countries. Like Amazon doesn't do that right now. Um, which means that we literally took all the constraints off the ability to monetize uh, your, your, your art, as it were. Uh, but the market just wasn't ready for it. Eh? And I think that's where we learned that there's a difference between a great idea and Airborne is largely considered to be a great idea. I mean, it's it's published in textbooks. Um, I did a TED talk on it. Uh, but a great idea and a great business are not always going to be the same thing. Um, and a great idea needs to be a great business if it's going to change the world. 
And I think also, you know, we 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 kicked like remembering the last couple of months at Airborne before we shut it down. We kicked around the idea of pivoting and could we use this for something else? And you know, in hindsight, if we had taken the tech and the distribution network and the legal covering of what we had set up for Airborne and pivoted into just a pure payments platform that could be used for anything, we would have been golden. But we were very, very focused. Like we wanted to do something in music. That was the passion. I think that's also something that sort of we've taken with us. Is yes, having a niche or having a, a focus is good, but don't ignore what's happening on the side because you never know. That might be actually all. Also, don't over-engineer. I mean, like, we built deep, eh? Like, our servers were located in a territory that was immune from the Digital Millennium Copyright Act takedown system. Our servers, their other clients were governments, military, and casinos. We went, like, totally ham because we thought we were going to be so successful that, you know, every record company in the world was going to come and sue us. We were hidden in Switzerland and Iceland and Panama and all sorts of places. We had companies all over the world. And perhaps some of the resources that we put into establishing all of that could have been better better invested in validating or or getting more. I don't, I don't know if we could have done better on the, the acquisition, but I think one lesson was not to over-engineer. We, we, tried, we, we put so much work into preventing abuse that in some cases we prevented use of... Uh, of what we built and that was something that i i learned that i never wanted to do again it's far better to uh, fix a problem that exists than to preempt one sometimes one of the final mistakes we made which was which may have been able to salvage things was when i killed uh, i sent the email that killed the company to all of our users i wrote like a, a love letter to our user base and uh that was literally the day after we shut off everything. The companies came down and everything. Uh, and the outflowing of support and like offers to help and sh- even offers to invest just came flooding in. I think one of the lessons learning when to quit uh, <laughs> is, is actually something not to continuously fail forward forever. Had we just said, look, we're in trouble. Um, we're going to have to close this down we might have been able to capitalize on that outpouring of support that came in after the fact. So you're down in your luck and, and Justin's been quoted in an article saying that you, you, you actually wiped out all of your cash, as you guys said, said a moment ago. Airborne's closed, uh, you, you're demotivated, you're sad, and then you started it all again. Then you started up Ikaya and, and arguably you, you can say that, yeah, you, you took the learnings through all the failures and, and you jumped into a new business. But why on earth after going through such an emotional journey of building a company that was good, people liked it, people used it, but it didn't work out and it wiped out all of your savings, why would you start another one? Because that's what we do. Yeah. It wasn't, wasn't, there was, there's no magical light bulb moment. It was just physics (laughs) and magnetism towards the thing. But but when we started Akaya, it started quite different to what it is today. Airborne was so frightfully ambitious and its scope was so massive that we went to the other end of the spectrum. So I think we like our dynamic of working together, like we really enjoy working together. So we'd continue that and whatever guys we could. Um, But we went to the other end of the spectrum from Airborne and we said, okay, cool. We're going to find a very simple, hyper local problem and fix it with technology. And for us, that was finding show houses on a Sunday. Uh, there were signs and dirt, and we figured, come on, we can we can beat signs and dirt. 
that was the way we could we could build a business around that because when it came from there's usually one data point that sends you on a journey. Forty percent of all house sales in South Africa come from an on-show experience. So the buyer comes to it through an open house, sees the house. Forty percent of the time, they buy what? it. One day a week between three yeah. and five p.m. Yeah, three hours a week account for forty percent of all house sales. So we thought, shit, let's go own that space because that's awesome. And that was a single data point that took you on on the journey. That's yeah. what made that made us look at the industry. Yeah, we yeah. wanted to. If we're going to do this again, we wanted to make sure that there was a good business opportunity. Uh, something that wasn't. We weren't trying to create a new build. We were trying to capitalize on an opportunity in in the world today. And in our world, yeah. I mean, like in South <laughs> literally Africa, in Cape Town. Don't worry Town, about man. like you know what's happening on the west coast of America or anything. We're just like this is how it's working here. How yeah. can we improve? So so airborne ended. And then, so Airborne, one of our our last angel investor in Airborne, a guy by the name of Mark Hidden, um, I sort of he he graciously kept us alive and fed peanut butter for, sandwiches. <laughs> for, oh, yeah, yeah, literally nothing but peanut butter sandwiches for six months. He kept us alive and helped us pay our rent and stuff like that for a while. So. Um, I don't think it was, I can't remember exactly. It wasn't that long. It was more like he, he really invested in us and as individuals and he was kind of find something, to I do, think yeah. in a fatherly way, trying to encourage us to find our next thing. Um, and as I say, as much as uh, collapse of everyone was traumatic, it wasn't like at the end of the day, it's just a freaking business. Do you know what I mean? Like it is your life's work and all that kind of stuff. And it felt more traumatic at the time, but you gotta you you gotta survive, man. You gotta you gotta find your next you gotta find your next thing as soon as possible. I, I want to digress for a moment and and talk about passion, because because many business owners in the tech space they 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 build products or solutions or services that that they're passionate about. To some degree, I know you guys were passionate about the music in, music industry when putting Airborne together, but now jumping into the household or, or, or the rentals and and sales space. Was this something that you were as passionate about then, or, or does passion actually not come into this at all? Is it just about seeing that data point and then going with it? I'll tell you one story. After the collapse of Airborne, I don't think I listened to music for about a year. Imagine that. Imagine like not listening to music for a whole year. After literally listening to music. After nothing but years, music yeah. for two years. Yeah. So it's like, it's nothing, nothing like, nothing will kill your passion for something quite like starting a business around it. I think I think the passion I speak for myself but I think it's something that we share is the passion is really not about the industry it's about the application of technology to solve a practical problem like we love doing that like we do that whether it's walking dogs or real estate or music industry or whatever it is uh we'll do that naturally even if people don't want us to we'll still <laughs> try and do it and so that passion is something that we carry through the actual subject matter at the end of the day, what is technology? Technology allows, uh, well, the definition I like is uh, the application of art and science to solve a practical problem. But in real terms, it's person A and person B want to do some business together and you build something that connects them at the end of the day. Whether it's property or music, it's just person A and person B needing to trust, connect with each other, maybe pay each other, get an exchange going. And it doesn't really matter if it's property or music. I mean, at the end of the day, rentals is something 90% of the people do anyway, or yeah. at least two-thirds of people rent statistically, and that just is mm. more and more every year. So it seemed like a good match. So with the with Ikaya, that was initially a show house finder in the sales space. But then after we butted heads with a couple of the big wigs, we decided, okay, let's pivot and look at something in the rental space. And that's how we actually got on the 
Ikaya journey to start dealing in rentals because there was yeah. no clear blockages there. And the data point, as you mentioned there, was the fact that two-thirds of people, well, pretty much everyone is going to be involved in the rental space at some point in their life, yeah. either landlord or as a tenant. You're going to, you're you going to be involved. Before you buy a house, you rent. Yeah. Um, and that two-thirds of the market were uh, doing it on a peer-to-peer basis. i totally amateur. These are just people trying to work with other people. And it's that data point that has kept us going. That, that encapsulates the opportunity that there's just, this is something that affects everyone's lives. It's a very large target market all around the world. It's going nowhere. In fact, it's increasing every single year. Like at the moment, one in three people on this planet formally rent. And they say by 2050, I think it's 2050, uh, it'll be two thirds. So 60% of our planet should be about 4 billion people. So what timing, an opportunity. <laughs> so timing is everything. You yeah. said that you, you were always kind of 15 minutes ahead of, of where you were at. I, I know you guys have been described as the, the Tinder for rentals. And, and I think that, that that kind of sums up uh, kind of what Ikaya does. And I'm curious to know whether, whether you liked being, whether you liked being called the, the Tinder for rentals. But, but to what extent as businesses like Tinder with their, their swiping left and right functionality paved the way for a solution like, like Ikaya in a way that during the Airborne days, there was no Spotify, Apple Music that paid the way for Airborne. No, I would say Tinder, the, the reason we adopted Tinder was regardless of the fact that it's um, a dating app where there's guys and girls inside it, the, the actual uh, addiction of left and right swiping is a really, really ingenious user pattern. Like that is, that's a really great way to experience content, forces people to make a decision about what they like and what they don't like. So we kind of, we're more inspired by that than the, uh, than the actual content of the app. You know, when you look like I do, you don't get that many matches on Tinder. So <laughs> I had to use his profile to see what <laughs> chat looked like. Anyway, for us, I think the the probably the main company that 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 really sort of paved the way. I guess it'd be more like Airbnb. What Airbnb did was audaciously create enough trust that strangers could let other strangers into their home for money. And their key product differentiator was solid design, which obviously personally resonates with me. And that transformation, I think it took us, it, it leapt to the world forward in terms of how we think about living in space and, and, and paying for or, or what, what the future of, of home really means. So I think Airbnb was a more critical thing, which is why the first version of a kayak more closely re- resembled Airbnb than the so-called Tinder interface that we have at the moment. The Tinder interface is really just something that's designed to take something that's really successful. And like personally, I'm like, why wouldn't you want something that's addictive uh, and then apply it to your business? Like this, it, that that's kind of why the 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 Tinder for rentals was there. But it, but it was also it's a little bit dated now. But at the time, Uber for this or Tinder for that or whatever was like a really great way of explaining it. And I think Tinder for rentals was a really great way to express. What the totality of what we were trying to do, which was about providing matches. It wasn't about search. It was about matching. What right. do you want? What is there? Let's put those two things together. Going from the original sort of Airbnb inspired interface uh, for discovery of rentals was searching. That was like you searched mm. with the price range in bedrooms and you sat there. Um, and with Ivy looking at the the matching, it was more like. You don't us, have that much choice, yeah, right? <laughs> tell us what you like. Or what you're looking for, and we'll let you know when we find something that matches it, and you can like you know pre-approve that list, and that that is a, a very different kind of searching. And 
as anybody who's been in the rental hunt process will tell you, it's a ball ache to do. So, you know, anything that makes it easier for you to get through that process is a good tool. What do you think about this movement globally where you've got a bunch of businesses starting out to describe themselves as the Uber for something or the Airbnb for something? So you're kind of explaining yourself to the lens of, of, of somebody else, not so much, I believe, from a credibility front, but because you can't package your own service into a sentence that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, in 90% of the cases, it's trite and useless, their description, and they're just using it as a buzzword. It's like blockchain now. Yeah. It's like, I'm doing dog walking on the blockchain, you know, and that's suddenly going to raise you a million dollars. For our case, like I explained, it encapsulated, if you know what Tinder is, then you know what our app does. And the difference is it is for rental property. So I felt like that, that was why we were able to stomach the association yeah. of it. How do you explain something like if you're doing something that's not been done before, you're doing it in a new and innovative way, coming up with that like Phrase X for Y yeah. is very difficult. Even if you're bastardizing Uber's name or Airbnb's name or whatever it is, even finding the correct fit there, it's, it's like the hardest thing to do, that sort of one sentence description, especially when you're super close to the product. So I think if you've come up with one that makes sense, all power to you. But I think it's a trope that's going to become very passe very quickly. I think it shows your age that you're a little bit behind the curve if, if you're sort of describing your way. But for us, we don't think of Ikaya as like Tinder for rentals. Our product Ivy is Tinder for rentals. Like it's a part of our world and that's one window into it. And it's a swipey swipey thing because it's fun and it's simple and there's no flippant text on the interface. The, the final thing that I want to talk about today, guys, is, is the point of convergence between Airborne and Ikaya. I think, as I said in the introduction, you guys have run a business that's successful and you've also run a business that have, that's failed. Throughout the podcast, we've touched on on elements that worked in some places and elements that, that did, didn't work in, in, in other areas and, and things that you carried across from one business to another. But I want to make it deadly simple for entrepreneurs out there today. What was the reason why Kaya worked and Airborne didn't? I, I think I can say, from at least from my perspective, quite simply, the replicable wisdom for why I think certain things work and certain things don't. As I alluded to in the past, like having a good idea without a good business is a bad idea. So learning that a good idea must have a good business and not not stopping until you find that fit is important. Don't just run ahead with a good product or a good idea. Get a good business. And then where it really comes to the intersection of your talent and timing with a good idea and a good business. That is the launch pad for success, I think. My second theory, which was more controversial, and the one I developed after when Airborne uh, uh, went apocalyptic, was that in to succeed, you need three things. Um, people, luck, or money. You need two out of those three things. You can be lucky and rich and probably succeed, or you need good people and some luck and you succeed, or people and money and you can succeed. So... Take that as you will, but that is my that was my thesis after <laughs> after Airborne that in order to succeed you need people luck or money to choose two out of three and you'll make it. My more mature, older, fatter self says intersection of talent and opportunity between a good idea and a good business, and you've got your your opportunity to build a tower on top of that. I think a lot of it can distill into the team. Team is very important, obviously. Uh, Luck, I think, is a big aspect of it. Like, you can have a really good team and you just need, or you could have a terrible team, but just get really lucky. 
But I think it comes down to having that team who has the wisdom to be able to decide, like this business model we currently have or this technology stack that we currently on the plan to develop is what we need to go the distance. And if you don't have that up, up front, you're going to struggle. So I think that's, that's one of the things we've definitely sort of grown on is like understanding that it's, it's not just about the team or the technology. It's where you sit in between that. Guys, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. We're going to wrap it up right over there. Thanks Thank for tolerating us. Yeah, Make sure you subscribe to our podcast and whether you're listening on SoundCloud or, or, or on iTunes. Next week, we're talking to Tyrone Whitaker. He's the youth pastor of Hillsong South Africa, and he'll be joining us in studio as we talk about leadership and communication and motivation, all key elements that are important when running your own business. 